0: An agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire.
1: I'm Felix Bennell, resident historian for Cairo News Radio. Heard with Dave Ross and Colleen O'Brien Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian podcast, bare-knuckle politics are nothing new in Washington, even for elder statesman
2: Dan Evans. I called home, got my mother and dad and said, look, if you want to see me sworn in as governor, you better come right now.
1: And then, from the archives, the man who envisioned a waterfront tunnel for Seattle 70 years before it was built.
3: He was a leader. There was no question about it. He was setting the tone. He was always respected. No, nobody ever laughed or joked about his stuff.
1: But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's
0: northwest corner is Washington, and, and it's time for our resident historian, Felix Pinel, who joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map, his quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, the old greenhouses in Monroe that were operated for
1: nearly forty years by a legendary railroad, Felix morning, Dave. Yeah, the legendary railroad was the Great Northern, the one that went over Stevens Pass, which was merged into what's now the BNSF just over 50 years ago. It's a perfect time to talk about an old greenhouse. you got the Northwest Flower and Garden Show this weekend at the Convention Center. Monday is Valentine's Day. Can I have that ambient sound I recorded in Monroe yesterday as a Seattle-bound Empire Builder went past? Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's like we're right there. Yeah. Yeah. for a lot of people, the Great Northerns is especially beloved railroad, and it might be the only one that had its own greenhouses. It's a growing operation that dates to the early 20th century, and a sole employee at a uh, border station over at Elk, Washington, a station over there. A guy named George Dishmaker. Management liked what he had done to beautify the station there at Elk and saw the potential for doing the same for the whole system. They expanded the operation and moved it to Monroe in 1926. Dishmaker's girlfriend was a schoolteacher there, apparently, so he was happy to move from Tiny Little Elk to slightly larger Monroe. Now, the source of this information is a guy named David Sproul. He's a great guy, fun to talk to, knows his stuff. He's a railroad historian who lives in St. Helens, Oregon. He worked for the railroad from 1960 to 1997, and he grew up in Monroe. So he saw the greenhouse in operation as a kid and a young man, and he knew the people who worked there. Why exactly would the Great Northern Railway even need a big greenhouse?
3: They supplied fresh flowers for the dining cars on all the passenger trains, and they supplied planted Flowers in planter boxes at all the depots on the system clear back into Minnesota and South Dakota. Every great northern station had a little planter box in front of all of its windows and uh, usually geraniums. So sweet. You know, a diff-
1: Yeah, different era of travel. You know, the whole system was supplied by train, of course, from Monroe and some of those great northern stations from Seattle all the way back to the Midwest. And railroad-owned places like the lodges at Glacier National Park, they were like botanical gardens and had... The dining cars had fresh flowers all the time and things like lilies at Easter. Now, the greenhouses were expanded around the end of World War II with a boom of post-war travel. even became a destination for horticulture groups and others interested in plants and flowers. But like so many things, the economics of passenger rail started to shift in the late 50s and early 60s. The greenhouses at Monroe were shut down in early 1963 and then were demolished that December. It, It didn't linger. I was out there yesterday poking around. There's nothing left. Nothing would give you any clue that such a cool facility it was there for almost 40 years. But I can personally vouch that history still blooms there, Dave. Yeah? <laughs> that's, oh,
0: I thought, I thought there was that's some. That's my big finish. <laughs> I thought you found some exotic flower in the shape
1: of a train No, no, nope, okay, just history. You've got to close your eyes and kind of take a deep whiff, and you'll smell the history right there.
0: The way you deliver that line is, but, Dave, history still blooms
1: in Monroe. That's I'm it. Felix Bunnell for Cairo News Radio. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, Felix. Have a great weekend. You too. Serving greater
0: Seattle. Washington, my home. Wherever i may roam. You are my ah, Yes, our state anthem. Kind of updated from the original, but our state <laughs> anthem nevertheless. <laughs> Dan Evans is 95 years old. He served three terms as Washington's governor, six years in the U.S. Senate. He also just published his autobiography, and so our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, caught up with the Evergreen State's renowned elder statesman. Felix is brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning.
1: morning, Dave. Yeah, Dan Evans is a good friend of the show. We've talked to you every now and then about Washington history, mainly because he lived through a lot of it. Um, He was governor during a pretty heady time from January of 65 to January of 77, and he was appointed to the Senate seat left vacant when Henry Jackson died in 1983. Now, he's an old-school Washington Republican, which means he's an environmentalist, he's socially moderate, and willing to reach across the aisle. And I would say it's not a stretch to call him the most widely respected political figure possibly in the history of the whole state. There's a bit of an Evans mystique among Republicans and even Democrats, and it's been this way for decades. He can't explain it. I did ask him, and it's just it's, it's, it's not clear what, what the real root of it is. The new book's called Daniel J. Evans, an autobiography. He said he wanted to have a sexier title, but he was overruled <laughs> by the Secretary of State's office who published it. We had a far-ranging conversation the other day, and I picked up a, uh, just a few of the many highlights to share. Now, when he was governor, it was an era of a lot of protests around civil rights, labor rights against the Vietnam War. One particularly memorable, memorable visit to Pullman for what was supposed to be a small gathering of campus Republicans at Wazoo became something entirely different when 2,000 students showed up.
2: So I just didn't even give more than a five-minute introduction to the, the big audience and said, you know, I don't want to tell you what we're doing. I want to hear from you what we should be doing. And that started off, and I was there for two hours answering questions and uh, getting really involved. It was it was one of the, the finest Um, gatherings of any kind that I think happened while I was governor because they were they were intense they were dismayed about what was happening in Vietnam Uh, they weren't particularly antagonistic toward me but they just wanted me to tell them what I thought we should be doing and uh, and then they had some ideas of their own so it it was a it was a great gathering
1: That ability to adapt to a situation like that takes political instincts and skill and Dan Evans' credits getting into politics as a 21-year-old college student fresh from military service and the influence of his parents. His mom was gregarious and from a family with long political ties and his dad was the county engineer for King County. He saw his dad listening to ornery county commissioners to hear their concerns but then also advocate for building the right kinds of concrete roads which were more expensive and longer lasting and they were the right thing to do if not the most politically expedient. Now, we talked about the RNC and this whole legitimate political discourse business, and Dan Evans wasn't too concerned. He says the party leaders can often be the most extreme people. That was certainly true in 1964 when Barry Goldwater was the Republican nominee for president and the year Evans was first elected governor. And there's a great sort of bare-knuckle politics story from that 1964 election. Um, Owing to a two-day gap between when the Democrat-led legislative session began on a Monday and when Republican Governor Evans would be sworn in two days later at noon on Wednesday, The Democrats went ahead with a plan to redistrict the state to their advantage while Governor Rossellini was still in charge. To try and shut down the Democrats, Republican leaders went ahead with a plan to swear in Evans just after midnight on Tuesday, rather than waiting until midday Wednesday.
2: I called home, got my mother and dad and said, look, if you want to see me sworn in as governor, you better come right now. This is about 930 at night on Tuesday.
1: Wow. So Dan Evans' mom and dad were hustled into a state patrol car in Seattle, and while they sped south, old-school politics were coming to a head in Olympia.
2: We had one of our members, one of our senior Republicans in the House, give a speech just saying that we'd rather do this in the proper thing, but we do have the Justice of the Supreme Court waiting, and we're prepared to swear Governor Evans in at midnight. And uh, a couple of our guys went to see the Speaker of the House, and... Um, He looked at them, they told him the story, and he said, you're serious, aren't you? Yes, we are serious. (laughs) And he said, well, you know, what if we adjourned right now until noon Wednesday? And our guy said, we think that would be just a marvelous idea, and so he did.
1: (laughs) I just love that scene. So they raided that state patrol car and turned around and took Dan Evans' poor, tired parents back to Seattle. He was sworn in at the regular time, and they then spent the next 47 days arguing over that redistricting but the Republicans gained 16 seats in the House in the next election and took control for the first time in 27 years. So it was a big deal. It was worth all those uh, last-minute uh, politicking there late at that Tuesday night. Now, I asked Dan Evans what it's going to take for a Republican to get elected governor in Washington. That hasn't happened since 1980, of course. He's not a fan of Lauren Culp or other far-right candidates. He did name a couple of potential Republican gubernatorial people to keep an eye on, including state legislators J.T. Wilcox and John Braun and Pierce County Executive Bruce Dammeyer.
2: He's probably the leading Republican office holder, the highest Republican office holder we've got now in the state. Uh, but uh, that's been a pretty good place for uh, future governors is uh, being a county executive is a, a job as close to being governor as we have in the state elected official. And so that's good. Uh, it's good, good training, good background.
1: Now, in those three terms as governor, one of Dan Evans' biggest political regrets, of course, is not passing tax reform, which he says would have included more than just a state income tax. It would have meant reducing the sales tax and eliminating that, the hated B&O tax. One more regret in the parallel universe category is imagining what might have happened if he, rather than Bob Dole, had been picked from the short list as President Gerald Ford's running mate in 1976.
2: The chances as vice president, if I did a good job. The chances of them being a candidate for president would have been pretty high. And uh, as it turned out, it didn't work. But that's, uh, you know, I always thought that that was a, a long shot chance to begin with. Yeah, and uh,
1: I asked him if we've named enough things after him here in Washington. He said it's all very <laughs> flattering. Uh, his favorite is the Evans School at the UW because he actually gets to go there and work with students. I think that Evans Wilderness on the Olympic Peninsula is a close second. Uh, the book's called Daniel J. Evans, An Autobiography. He says he's 95 and in great health and is not planning a sequel. Uh-huh. Um, Said of the screenplay option. I asked him who should play him in the movie. He didn't have any idea. I think it would take a trio of actors. I suggested maybe Andrew Garfield, Matthew McConaughey, and then David Strathairn for the later years.
0: <laughs> so, But you don't think he'll be uh, lured out of retirement is what you're saying?
1: I don't think so, but that, that Evans Mystique thing, you know what I'm talking about when I say that this sort of notion, like yeah. he's held up by so many people as this exemplar, but he can't really explain what that what it's, that comes it's
0: from. It's bipartisan affection because uh, the guy was so reasonable. I want, well, yeah. but I didn't know this because I, I didn't get here till 1978. But he was yeah, yeah. on the short list to be Ford's running mate, huh?
1: Oh, yeah, and he, so he was a keynote speaker at the 68 Republican Convention, but he wasn't a Nixon guy. He was a Rockefeller guy, so he had no chance in yeah. 68, but he was on the short list in 76. would have been a very different world. I mean, Gerald Ford didn't win in 1976, of course, but it would have meant a different future for Dan Evans and, and than running the Evergreen State College, which he, he took over right after he left the governor's office. So, yeah. F- Fascinating guy.
0: Felix Bennell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave.
2: For this is Cairo where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity.
1: For this edition of From the Archives, Paul Theory was a Seattle architect who designed all kinds of remarkable buildings, and he never wanted the Alaskan Way Viaduct to be built in the first place.
0: President historian Felix Bunnell brought to us by the King County Library System. Felix is another one of his, his history crusades. Um, he not only reports the <laughs> history, he creates it. And, <laughs> Today, uh, he wants to talk about finding an appropriate name for the Highway 99 Tunnel, which so far we've been calling the Highway 99 Tunnel.
1: Yawn. Oh, sorry. What yeah. a dull name.
0: No, I know. So we've been asking people to, to submit their, their suggestions to the Online Trading Academy text line at 98973, but you have pretty strong feelings of your own about
1: this. Yeah, well, they're developing. They're becoming stronger. Now, quick quiz. You, you guys, Dave, or um, Chris, you know who the 520 Bridge is named for? Uh, Governor. Homer Hadley.
0: Oh. No, it's uh, uh, Rosalini. <laughs> Rosalini,
1: right. Exactly. Governor Albert Rosalini. You know why it's named for Governor Albert Rosalini? Because he got the money for it? Exactly. And he was governor when it was dedicated. So yeah. kind of a bookend thing. that worked out pretty well. Everyone still calls it the 520 Bridge, though. Now, the new tunnel is a pretty significant piece of public infrastructure. So over at the Washington State Transportation Commission, the public agency that decides these things, you'd think the name proposals would be pouring in.
3: There are no proposals on the table before us uh, that have been submitted to name the tunnel. So... Um, uh, It's not unlike any other state highway in our state. It it has its number assigned as State Route 99, and and that's its official name that appears on all maps.
1: Yeah. So that's Rima Griffith. She's executive director of the Washington State Transportation Commission. And, you know, Sully told us a few months ago how the naming process works, but here's a quick refresher. There's two pathways. Names are submitted by the public and vetted by the commission. Or the state legislature passes a piece of legislation calling on the commission to name a bridge or a ferry boat or a section of highway in honor of some person or group. Now, for the tunnel, some people have mentioned former Governor Christine Gregoire as a possible namesake because she took action in 2009 to end the debate and replace the viaduct with a deep bore tunnel. Voila. But she told the Seattle Times in December that she's, quote, not dead. Though you don't have to be dead to have a transportation asset named for you, Rosalini, for example, was very much alive when 520 was renamed in his honor in 1988. I reached out a few times to Governor Gregoire this week through the organization she runs called Challenge Seattle. And just to get her current thinking, we just got cricket noises. Um, Anyway, a few years (laughs) ago, I was doing some research into viaduct history and came across a clipping in the Seattle Times from November 1947. And in this clipping, Seattle architect Paul Theory said, essentially, forget building the viaduct, build a tunnel under downtown instead. He said, get this, a viaduct will block the view of Elliott Bay. Mm -hmm. It won't solve downtown traffic issues and it will interfere with the working waterfront. So he's a visionary. (laughs) Exactly. Now, Theory's Tunnel, I don't think it was deep bore. It would have run from 8th and Jackson, around the edge of the International District, to, believe it or not, East Lake Avenue and Yale Street, which is about 50 feet from right where we here. sit. Right here. Yeah. Bizarre coincidence. Now, this was before Interstate 5, and I don't fully understand how Theory's Tunnel would have connected to 99 and the Aurora Bridge. That's a mystery I haven't solved yet. Now, the planners didn't listen to Paul Theory about the viaduct, but he did have a pretty decent career around here and around the world. Um, he designed the original old Mohai in Montlake. The Fry on First Hill, the Fry Museum, that Saint Demetrios Greek Church over in Montlake. And the Washington State Pavilion for the nineteen sixty two World's Fair, which is better known as Key Arena and has yeah. been you know, deemed worthy of preserving for this new arena. Wow. He was also the supervising architect for all of the world's fairgrounds, now Seattle Center, and as a member of the City Planning Commission in 1961, he wanted to lid all of I-5 through downtown Seattle. Does that sound familiar to you? Yes, too? that <laughs> idea is
0: coming back as well.
1: Okay, so you're, I'm winning you over. I can tell you're, you're coming along here. Well, I, I had no idea he had a resume that long. It's crazy. So beyond the list of projects, I wanted to get a sense of who Paul Theory was as a person, and I was able to speak with another amazing local architect named Jane Hastings. She'll be 91 in a few weeks. She's a real tra- trailblazer around here. She knew Paul Theory back in the 1950s. Oh, <laughs>
3: almost stately, uh, in a sense. I mean, there was a presence about him that, you know, that kind of demanded respect. (laughs) And he expected it. He was an interesting personality. He was not the easiest personality. (laughs) (laughs) But but obviously, you know, he was a good architect. And uh, I remember when I got out of school, he was one of the ones you really wanted to go to work for. And of course, he would not Ever think of having a woman in his office and only, only to be the secretary or clean the floors, I
1: think. Okay, so not to make excuses for 60-year-old sexism, but this was pretty common at the time. You know, um, for instance, uh, Jane Hastings was the eighth woman to register as an architect in Washington State, so she's a trailblazer. Wow. Either way, Jane Hastings says that theory's architecture was known as the international style with flat roofs Lots of glass, little or no ornamentation. It was pretty futuristic. Theory himself reflected this,
3: and he was a forward thinker. He was a leader. There was no question about it. He was setting the tone, uh, you know, for people to follow. And he knew his history, and he and he was always, he was always respected. No, nobody ever laughed or joked about his stuff. Let me tell you. you know, <laughs>
1: So based mainly on his idea for a tunnel 72 years ago, but also because of his other work around the city, I asked Reema Griffith of the Washington State Transportation Commission if the Paul Theory tunnel has potential.
3: Sure. I mean, I think it has those important connections, you know, that make it relevant and interesting. So I think, you know, from that standpoint, certainly it would make a good candidate. And then, you know, the the true test is just kind of putting it out there for the public to discuss and debate and react to and, and see, you know, how that goes. So certainly something as high visibility as the tunnel, um, uh, probably a little extra care will need to go into that vetting just because of its prominence.
1: So with the millions of people listening to us right now, I'm sure the, the debate's going to be more prominent now. If they get more than one proposal, they'll, they'll pause. They, want, they don't want anyone to feel left out of the process. And they're not on any timeline. You know, they'll react to proposals as they receive them. Paul Theory passed away in 1993 at age 88. Um, Jane Hastings says he would have appreciated the honor. So I've set up a little Paul Theory State Route 99 Facebook uh, t- tunnel have Facebook you? page. Just as a coincidence, it's close to 60 likes right now after a couple days. 60 so likes, good for you. It's high, I call it high double digits. The Paul Theory Tunnel, the PTT. You know there is a Homer Hadley Bridge, right? Exactly. That's, that's the newer of the that's two the I-90, I-90 bridges. Oh, I know my bridge yeah. names. Yeah, and the other one's Lacey V. Murrow, named after Edward R. Murrow's brother and exactly. all
0: that kind of stuff. Uh, so I'm not getting by you. Yeah. Thank you, Felix. <laughs> All Felix's stories are on MyNorthwest.com. It is-
1: I'm Felix Bennell at Cairo News Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Yes, it's raining in Seattle.
3: I come home.
2: This is Dan Evans. You're listening to Felix Bennell on Cairo Radio.